Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fuck. I just remembered you're a Flyers fan. Yeah. That's why I'm a Flyers fan. Oh, my God. Because my people come from Philly. That's horrible. Philly and Jersey. Ron Hextall. Oh, he's such a great We won't won't talk about about literally no one but us will know what we're talking about. That's my very, name. Very jet lagged. Very jet lagged, Kate Feld. Kate Feld. Yeah. Mismatched. Not mismatched. Is that the right word? <laughs> I am mismatched. Well, the clothes I'm wearing are comically mismatched. Yes. Because I'm. I come. I'm. We're here at Rob's house, guys. I know. This is so exciting. We're at Rob's house. Yeah. Um. And I can tell you, Rob's house is really nice. Oh, don't tell them that. Well, it's I'm nice. Broke. No, I'm not saying it's fancy. <laughs> it's just a nice place. Hey, man. They know that. And also, Rob has an accordion on his shelves, and I'm hoping he's going to play it for me later. It's not going to happen. What about the end of the podcast? Come on. It was a gift from my eccentric mother-in-law. Wow, that's that's like the most eccentric gift ever. Mm. Yeah. But lovable eccentric. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, um, maybe we can experiment with that later. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even want to know what that means. Um, yeah, so uh, old school fans of the podcast will, I, I'd say, recognize the sound of this house because that's where it used to be recorded. <laughs> I don't think we have any fans Massive audio that, are that, that are that dorky, Rob. Yeah. I, it was funny because I thought, should I give them a Pam update of my neighbor across the street? Okay, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember where she left off. We're talking about... Two years ago, last time I talked about well, it. Well, then you have to do a little recap for the benefit of people. Right, okay. So the benefit of you, though, I have no idea here. what you're talking about. Pam is my neighbor across the street, and she's like proper English elderly uh, neighbor, whereas she's a busybody. Okay. Bit of a Tory. Oh. Yeah. And she doesn't like bins on the road, big time. She's, she's, at first, I thought she was just being nice, putting my bins away. We found out since it's just because she can't stand bins. Oh, really? Yeah. So she'll but walk across nice. the road and yep, she puts my bins move back. them? Yeah. Wow. Which is great. If you don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but she was having uh, problems with her knees, I think. And she was not very active. But she's had two knee replacements. And now she's up and at them again. Going around, I don't know, saying nice things about Brexit, I guess. Wow. Or whatever it is she does. I'm making assumptions. Maybe she's the total... Lefty. Can lefties be that? It, pff, what's the word? But I, I can't think of a word that can be that worried about the street. Yeah. How about persnickety? Persnickety. That's a good word. Yep. So lefties can be just as persnickety as righties. Probably in different you. ways, though, I would have um, Like about their bins no, being out on the road? No, no, no. I don't think that there's any alignment between political views and the things that people are persnickety about. Human right. human nature is vast, Rob. It's weird. Yeah, it is weird. I yeah. agree. But um, it, yeah, she's. I mean, she's nice. Uh, she looks after the house when we're away and stuff. Um, oh, she, so you have a good relationship with yeah, her? Yeah. Oh, sort of. Okay. It's kind of soured a bit because the she campaigned to get the big lime trees on the street taken down. It's like eighty year old lime she trees. She campaigned to get trees yeah. cut down. Yeah. Why? Because there are too too many leaves. Too the, many the leaves, yeah. like too many notes, right? I know, right? Oh. So anyway, um, so they're, they've been cut down. 
What? Yeah, they did replace them with these little sapling things, which is fine, I guess. But I love that they've cut them down and replaced them with yep. trees that will produce less leaves. Sorry, do you live in Trafford? Yeah. Is yes, that right? Correct. Yeah. Welcome that's... to Tory, the only Tory land in. Manchester, I think. Yep, the only place that has money to do shit like yeah. this. Our yeah, our roads are great. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, they they did. Oh god, I can't. I don't know why we're even talking about this. But they ground the trunks right down and planted the trees right oh on top. God. So you can't even tell the old ones were there. They're completely All right, an we absolute. Can't, we can't talk about this anymore because we sound like the most boring middle class like Manchester suburban. I know. Well, that's that's Ermston. Yeah. Welcome to Ermston. <laughs> <laughs> Right Manchester on. suburbia. Wow. Yeah, we got a new burger place. Uh, yeah, it's it's nice here. It's nice here. I'm having yeah, a little yeah. South Manchester visit. I'm I'm staying at a friend's house. Cat sitting right now. So. I like how you say a friend. Can we name her? No, because okay. that makes it sound like we're all we're name dropping. We're we're all all the podcast guests are our friends, and we just okay. have our friends on the podcast. It'll just be a delightful mystery forever. Yeah. No one will ever know. Yep. Just so, some friend that's also been on the podcast at some point. Yep. Guess so, which one. Hmm. So yeah. Anyway, um, and I did some writing today. That's good. Yep. What did you write? I wrote a piece. I was asked to contribute a piece to a chapbook. Someone I know is putting together about dreams. Do you know? I've had this discussion before. What? I'm still not entirely sure what that means. What a chapbook chap is? Just okay. a poetry pamphlet. Well, it could be it could be any format form. Sorry, it could be fiction. They have fiction chapbooks, prose okay. chapbooks. Um, but a cha- the idea of a chapbook is that it's a small book. Okay. So it's for usually chaps. no, it has nothing to do with chaps. Only it's dudes for, can for read for chaps them. and chapettes. <laughs> um, that is the most non-feminist thing I think I've ever heard you say. The, you know, chaps and chapettes. I have no problem with that. <laughs> anyway, it's. It's not bound usually, like it's it's stapled. just a, it's stapled or it's kind of bound in some I don't know rope, slight, slightly yes more. Um, Do we mention case jet lagged? <laughs> Sorry, I can't think of words. It's been a um, long summer. Words. We've both been on long holidays. It's been long holidays, yeah. And anyway, so it's a book that's it's a small book. It's smaller than most big proper books. It's just such a strange word chat, chat book. book. Why not just pamphlet? Well, they also, it's kind of interchangeable with pamphlets, but I think pamphlet also has the connotation of being less high quality. Okay. You know, chapbook. Chapbook to me sounds less high quality. Listen, whatever. It's, it's a small it's, book. It's some, that some chap puts I wrote, in his back pocket. I wrote a piece for it. I wrote it quickly. I sent it off. It was about a dream I had Okay. in which I was um, carrying a bucket of oysters around. Okay. That's all I'm going to say about it. Okay. Yep. Oh, writing about dreams, eh? That's right. <laughs> That's how we do. Um, so we have mentioned that you've been back behind the orange curtain. Indeed. How was that? It was great. Yeah. How is it? How is it in Trump land? It's weird, as you would expect. Yeah. Um, I was in Vermont. You didn't get shot. No, didn't get shot. Was in Vermont and New Jersey, so I hit two states. Yeah. Um and. Yeah, both surprisingly devoid of much actual conversation about what's happening. I think it's the summer. People maybe wanted to take a little vacation from talking about their problems. Um, When we did, when the conversation did kind of venture into that territory, 
people definitely had this sort of thousand yard stare, you know, when they were talking about Trump, like these are, these are traumatized people, you know? Um, so I totally got that. And, you know, we would have these conversations about it, but then they would inevitably finish the conversation with, but at least we're not in England, right? Look at what's going on over there. Jeez. Are you scared? Are they stockpiling food yet? I read something about them stockpiling pharmaceuticals the other day. Like, seriously. He's not wrong. I know, right? So It's funny, when you hear that someone else say that, and you go, no. And then you you actually, no, that is happening. Yeah, this is my life. Yeah, Yeah. completely. These are our lives. Mm -hmm. So this is Do you know what's funny? Brexit is mentioned in the podcast. So we can act. This is one of the only times we can whinge about it, though. I, I don't know if I can even face it. Yeah. I I don't really think whinging is what I want to do about no. it. I think that's not really strong enough. No. You know? No. I want to shoot Boris Johnson. I don't want to shoot Boris Johnson. Um, but I I'd, I'd like to I'd like to hurt him yeah. in a in a mild and non-permanent way and then remove him from any power ever. Yeah. Um, along with all his friends. I think he's one of the, him and Jacob Reese Mogg are like the two people that I could tase and they just not ever let the trigger go. Yeah, yeah, they're Jacob Reese Mogg. You know, though, I find him so entertaining oh, that I, I hate, couldn't. I don't understand people like you. I don't get it. Uh, because he's so vile and he's such a. I can't believe he actually exists. He's not like some villain character invented for a film or something. I know. Like, he doesn't seem real. No, he's a total comic book villain. So, but unfortunately, he is a real person in power. And that's the problem with Bars, too, is that yeah. you can be distracted by his. I mean, he, he nurtures that. That kind of cartoon character, cartoon you know, tough, right? That that because people have affection for these archetypes, and it makes him seem familiar and less threatening. Mm-hmm. When actually, he has a shit ton of power. Mm-hmm. I mean, so does Jacob Rees Mogg, and mm-hmm. they're seriously screwing up this country. I know, right? It's crazy, isn't it? So anyway, that'll that. yeah, we'll stop. Yeah, that'll that. do. Kevin Duffy is the guest on this podcast, and he's he runs Blue Moose Books. And he is a very outspoken fella. He's not shy about talking about the state of the publishing great. industry, which is great. And um, I thought we could touch on a few things he talks about. Uh, one of which, the main thing he, he's talking about is about the indie publishers being used as the R&D wings of big publishing companies. So basically, he's, he's talking about um, authors being poached. Correct by bigger publishers from small publishers. The idea is small publishers find these emerging writers, they nurture them, they polish their stuff up, they help them publish their first book or two. And then once they've had critical success, big established publishers sweep sweep in and take them, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. And I, I think there is some truth to what he's saying. Um, however, I'm not sure I agree that they should be paid a finder's fee mm. um, for by the bigger publisher. I think that's a bit oversimplified. Mm. He's, you're not the only one either. He mentioned in the podcast someone else, but I had to take it out because he named names. Yeah. Uh, about someone else who is kind of against it because he thinks that it it would put agents off of sending people their way. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I understand what he's talking about because. You know, indie publishers have no money, uh, and they're very, very good at finding authors. Like, I mean, look at the not the Booker Prize; it's all indies this year. 
um, two from Denny. Have you heard there's a not the not the Booker Prize? Oh, is there? No. Yeah, there is. Is there? Yeah, <laughs> because the not the Booker Prize has gotten to establishmentarianism, <laughs> kind of, and I think that some people are taking issue with the way winners are calculated and yeah. Um, so yeah, there's a not the not the Booker Prize. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, as a writer, it's hard for me to feel too bad about publishers, <laughs> just because, you know. Um, they're publishers and we're not. <laughs> I mean, I, I, but I think for independent publishers, I have a, a soft spot for, and especially Kevin, because he was so forward in, in talking about the publishing industry. And really, I learned quite a lot about how it's structured and, and the best ways of kind of attacking it um, when you're sending your own work out. But at the same time, you just want, like, I don't know, as, as an author, you're not going to turn down money, are you? You're not going to, someone, if, if Random House comes knocking on your door and says, "Here, here's a bunch of money. Come with us," you're not going to go. Oh no, my, you know, my pride and my, I believe in independence. Well, some people do. You know, I mean, for example, Deborah Levy continues to publish some of her work with and other stories mm-hmm. because they, I, I believe this to be true. I would have to confirm it, but I think that um, major publishers turn down. Was it Swimming Home, mm-hmm. um, which then went on to, I think, win the Booker? Did it? Or was shortlisted, or it did very well. Okay. Um, and then a major publisher sort of got more interested in her again. She had been with a major publisher before. Um, so she publishes like her, her memoirs and nonfiction with Hamish Hamilton. But her uh, I think her fiction might still be with and other stories, um, or some of her writing... And so I always thought that was cool because she's, you know, recognizing that they got behind her when other people wouldn't. Yeah. I think Ben Myers does that as well. Yeah. And I think that, so some, you can choose to do it and it's nice to be in a position to be able to choose to do it. Yeah. We have to say, um, some people aren't, you know, and if they're offered more money and it's not just the money too, it's also the publicity, the marketing, you know, these bigger publishers just have more resources, you know, and whether or not they always use them wisely, mm. they have more to throw at your books. So, um, you know, y- y- it tends to, they get a little bit better return on it sometimes. Um, now it just depends how you quantify success, I guess, and what that means to you, mm-hmm. you know, like, so, but it's just like my friend's a, a music promoter and he will, uh, book, gigs her bands in Manchester and artists in Manchester for a couple of years. And then even though they have a great relationship and he does a great job setting up their gigs and getting people there and selling tickets and whatever, um, if they get to a certain size, quite often they'll just end up going with a bigger promoter because of the scale, economies of scale. They can book them across several cities. They have maybe different relationships with venues and different places. They can do more, Mm -hmm. you know, and I don't think he gets annoyed when that happens, really. Mm. You know, it's just, that's the ecos- that's his role in the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, though I know he probably has a special love in his heart for artists who choose to stay with him because they like him particularly and yeah. his, his company. But I think that indie publishers have to recognize that's the reality of their position in the, the kind of publishing ecosystem. And... Sure, you can get bitter about it, but go find the next one. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? That's that's what they do. Mm-hmm. That's their role. And should bigger publishers put more into finding emerging writers and 
you know, helping them get on their feet. Absolutely. But they they don't seem to be doing that any, and have little incentive to, to do it, it seems. Mm-hmm. So this is the setup we have now. Not only do they have no incentive to do that, um, and Kevin goes into this on the podcast about how the idea of building an audience is just, that is completely gone when it comes to the big publishers. Oh, but yeah. not only is that not a thing anymore, but if they do poach you and then you, they do a book with you and that book, doesn't sell you know a million copies well not a million but doesn't do well then that's it for you with them as well so I think the lesson is if you do uh, decide to go with a bigger publisher after you know uh, an entity has pumped you up and done this this, Mm. you know don't burn any bridges because you might be knocking on their door again later on yeah and I mean I think that uh, it's it's never good to burn any bridges anyway Mm -hmm. like ever you know you never know like I imagine if if you're in that position, it's a really tough decision. Mm-hmm. And if you decide to go with a bigger publisher, then you have to try and be gracious about it, you yeah. know? Well, I know, gracious, but at the same time, you've, gracious is one thing, but also whether you honor the contract that you've already signed. Oh, some people are breaking their contracts? Well, kind of. I th- That's totally not okay. Yeah. Well, they may not breaking their contracts, but buying themselves out of their contracts. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's kind of... That seems a bit... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's... I don't know. What would I... It's a problem that I'd love to have, frankly. Um, and I can understand why writers would do... I really understand why writers would do that. Because sure. there's f- I can no too. money in it at all. And if, if anybody that offers you a pittance, you know, you jump at it, don't you, really? It's not, it's not just the money, though. It's also... You want your work to get out there. You want it to get in the hands of readers, you know? Yeah. And if you're under contract with a small publisher who has a fairly humble marketing team, maybe maybe it's the same person who publishes the books, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, you face the prospect of having quite a small release of your book or suddenly the prospect of having a massive Mm-hmm. release where it's going out to a number of markets you know potentially international I mean you know it's I can see that would be really enticing just from a creative perspective not even factoring money into it you know yeah. so yeah but I think the the larger indies these days they have I wouldn't say substantial marketing teams but they have they have marketing teams they do um, they get them on into BBC radio and they get them on into prizes and stuff but I think they do kind of rely on prizes, don't they, really, to get... Well, everyone yeah. relies on prizes, yeah. which is, you know, I've yeah, about that before. But the Indies are doing really well on prizes at the moment. So it's, it's a tricky one. I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. Um, I just wish I was in that position, personally. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I mean, doing something like calling for finder's fees, while it can sound a bit extreme, does a good job of putting this issue in front of people and making them think about it that way. Yeah. Because... Yeah, great indie publishers do incredible work with yeah. authors. And, you know, that that needs to be better supported, better, you know, more recognized and somehow made more sustainable, really. I agree. Yeah. The um, He also mentioned, mentions in the podcast the problem with agents as well. I don't know if we'll get too much into that, um, but just because he does, he talks about it quite a bit. Okay. But... Um, the problem with agents coming to independent publishers, especially in the north, uh, and just kind of using it as a last resort, basically, rather than, you know, thinking, oh well, you know, Blue Moose, 
publishes these sorts of books and uh, or Dead Ink publishes these kinds of books that the big publishers don't. They'll put send to them first. They never ever do that. They always send it to the big ones. First, well, yeah, obviously. but that's that. I mean, that's how the world works. Yeah, but they also, I think they they treat they treat northern publishing companies with not with contempt, but you know they they start from the position that you should just be lucky. I'm coming to you, basically. Really? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I think they treat small publishers with contempt, kind of wherever they are, but they may not know the ones based in the north as well as the ones down their way. So it's just, I mean, it is, being based in the north, you kind of have, like, two, and a small publisher, you've got at least two strikes against you. Like, mm-hmm. And I don't know. So, but, yeah. But when... Isn't there value in spreading it out across? Oh, completely. Yeah. Sure, there's value in it. I just, and I think that things like the Northern Writers' Prize and the Northern Fiction Alliance and initiatives like that are wonderful. I totally support them. Um, but I think it's, unless the publishing industry wants to change, you know, it's not gonna. You know? Well, is, can you not push them into changing? How would you do that? Finders fees on... <laughs> no, Rob, no. I don't know. I think you need to do something. Something has to be done, right? Because it won't... You'll, you'll... The stuff that's published, you'll never get interesting books into bookshops again, I don't think, if, if it carries on the way it's going now. I think people will always publish books because they love the books. I think yeah, but if you've got no money to do that, like, you know, people have to live and eat. Rich people will do it. Well, yeah, but that's The not rich what... people will save us, Rob. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You have been in the Go United rich States. People. You have been in the United States for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we just need to give them more money, really. It's trickle down. It's like jam. You pour jam on London and it spreads right. to the rest of the That's country. Right. Yeah, thanks, no. Morris. Right, should we move to a, a more fun topic? Yeah. That's all very serious, especially yeah. if you have Yeah, we're not supposed to be doing this. involves a lot, of, a lot of thinking about serious things. We're not supposed to be doing this. It's supposed to be our light. Welcome back from summer holidays. Yeah, so podcast. you went on some summer holidays, and I we did, haven't yeah. talked about that. I did. I went to Canada. You went to your native land. Yeah. So home in native land. What? That's right. Home on native land. Oh, is that how it goes? No, it's home and native. No, no, you've not seen the Captain Kirk. Um, what's his name? Who's Captain Kirk? What's his name? Oh God! Um, don't ask a jet lag woman, okay? What is wrong with me? He's like my hero. He's the best Canadian that's I ever know. been. I know. I didn't realize he was Canadian. Yes. No way. Of course he is. Shatner. Shatner. William yeah, Shatner. Yeah, William Shatner. So anyway. How embarrassing is that that it took us that long to think of William I'm Shatner? I'm jet lagged. What's your excuse? I'm old. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> William Shatner sings Oh Canada. That's all I'm going to say. Google that and okay. watch it. It will change your life. Is it as crazy as the stuff? Have you heard Leonard Nimoy's songs? Yeah. Holy crap. Have you heard William Shatner's songs? Yeah, I've heard them too. Like Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Is that I him or is remember. that Leonard Nimoy? One of them did an amazing cover of it. I can't remember. It's just like unreal. Yeah. It's, but it's just talk well, it's just talking through over yeah, pseudo yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I went to uh Maritimes for the first time ever. Which is close to where you were, really. Yeah. Yep. So New Brunswick, Nova Scotia. Prince Edward Island, ate my weight in lobster, like some oh, sort of dawn. Oh, bastard. I know, yeah. You it was bastard. Good. It was good. I had one lobster roll on the beach in New Jersey, and I paid dearly for it, uh, I can tell you. But it was damn good. I went to a place in on Prince Edward Island called Something Lobster Suppers. It was a, it looked like like an 80s evangelical church from the outside, just like a brick front 
like kind of bungalow and uh but big yeah so i walked in and he said okay it's uh, 80 dollars each hello listener i am interrupting this podcast because i don't know what i was smoking on the day that we recorded this but the <laughs> and I can't believe I'm correcting this stupid story. I think this, this lobster story is so important in the podcast that it must be legitimate and right. Why didn't I just delete the whole thing? Anyway, it was not $80 each. It was eighty seven ninety five for two people. So it was actually it's actually closer to $40 Canadian each. So 20 pounds. The place was called New Glasgow Lobster Suppers. If you're next time you're in Prince Edward Island, I highly recommend it. I'm gonna blame Kate's jet lag for me being stupid on the day this was recorded. Now back to the podcast. That's just a pound of lobster. Like I don't even know what that is because I, I don't eat lobster. Is a pound? How many is that? Five lobsters? Who knows, right? I hope it's just one. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, they said okay. So we pay their money and we walk in, and it's go to the top floor. And it's enormous. There's thousands of tables. There's, I thought you were going to say there's thousands of lobsters. <laughs> yes, there's thousands of wall lobsters. lobsters. I had to crawl over <laughs> the lobsters to get to the other lobsters. <laughs> and uh, empty, completely empty. There's nobody in the place. And he goes, except there's like a few tables around the windows. And that's yeah. where everyone's gone to. Okay. So they said, oh, do you want to go downstairs? Because everyone's got the windows up here. And I was like, well, there's hardly any people up here. Hello, listener. It's Rob again. I'm bailing on this story. I, it totally was not worth correcting in the first place. This story actually goes on for about five minutes. And the punchline is, the food is good. Okay, if you really want to know more about this stupid lobster story, give me an email and I'll send you the whole thing. I'm Believe me when I tell you, this is a mercy killing. Okay, now back to more interesting stuff. Okay. Um, right, so that's the uh, holiday stuff out of the way. Okay. What, what else, else do you got? What else have I got? Um, I had more agenty stuff. I don't want to talk about you. Okay. I don't like him. Oh, I read uh, Grayson Perry's The Descent of Man. Yeah, I heard you liked it. And yeah. you're now like a woke feminist. I'm a woke feminist. <laughs> We've all been waiting, guys. We've all been waiting for Rob to it wake really up. It was really interesting. He got woke. I got woke. So tell me, this will be entertaining. Tell me some of your woke... <laughs> feminist revelations like have you had any major epiphanies here that you can lay on us i think the, the of course the major epiphanies i have is how it relates to men <laughs> you know what i only said that because i wanted to see that face <laughs> your angry face is good even the sound jet of lag, crickets even chirping yeah. yes basic you know feminist teaching stuff Male gaze and all that business. Male gaze and all that business. Yeah. I love the jaunty way yeah. you so say I that, that, waving but your hand. I, I, Male what, gaze and what, all that, in your entitled <laughs> way. Male gaze right, you and know. all that jazz. Well, you know, because you know, this is... The, I think the thing that I found most interesting was just... It was the little things about how the world is set up to suit men. Air conditioning in buildings. Like, that's always set so men are comfortable. Um, you know, it's little things like that that I never thought about obviously you want men and women to be paid the same and um to be out for the same jobs and you know yeah all that stuff and you should men should be doing as much around the house as, as women that stuff i all i always get but what I, the other thing he was talking about was the effect on men the current 
situation is in how the suicide rates are really high because men can't, you know, live up to this whatever masculine ideal. Okay, so now your face is going like that again. But I think that's the first time I'd heard that because uh-huh. in, in any, and that's, that's kind of, I think, the gateway for dudes to get into okay. feminism. I mean, look, you know, I'm not, my face is like, is going like that because um, I live in a world that is dominated by a patriarchy, you mm. know, and like I, in the patriarchy, am a second class citizen. Like my daughters are second class citizens in a way that you just mentioned that one thing about the air conditioning, which is a really great, like little detail. Mm-hmm. That's one of like... Millions. Bajillions, yes. right? That are so unconscious to most people yeah. that we don't understand it. But once you start seeing them, then, you know, there's hopefully a cascade of realizations and epiphanies here. Yeah. Just even um, like how the inside of a car right. is built and, you know, like just the so, whole world is built for Yeah. And dudes. like I am completely... So I understand it's difficult being a man and dealing with um, <laughs> it's not. masculine standards of, you know, kind of the unrealistic expectations for men to be this perfect breadwinner, kind of mm-hmm. macho, never cries completely, and yet completely enlightened and sensitive yep. and whatnot. However, <laughs> um, I'm my like that's pretty far down on my list of shit to yeah. be worried about. Well, that's because right you're a chick. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good it's that wonderful was I that was so, a joke yeah, that was a joke we know it's a joke okay. um but like i i think grayson perry's great i'd like to kiss him on the mouth for doing yeah. programs like this because yeah. at least you're getting he's getting people like you to but think about it i'll tell you what what it, one of the most the, that's what the biggest epiphany was i was reading the book and i got halfway through and he said he, he basically mentions that you know if this is the first book you as a man have written read Notice that it's written by a man, you know, yeah, the, the yeah, one yeah. that I, the one bit of, you know, feminist. Yeah. Uh, Think whatever. about who's writing your books. Yeah. Yeah. So I picked the one that's a, written by a dude. Well, I can find some other books for you to read, Rob. I don't think I'll. Okay, go on. About feminism. I don't know if I need any more. I'm woke now. I got it. <laughs> well, I'm doing an event for the Literature Festival. Here we go. Oh, Plug see? time. Plug yeah, time. fine. Go on. It's plug time. <laughs> um, with Laura Feigl, okay. um, who's written a book that I think I expect to find very interesting. I have not um, started reading it. Partly about Doris Lessing. Have you heard of the Golden Notebook, which is sort of a feminist masterwork? Um, I'm going to say yes, just to make you happy. Okay, yes. You've yes, heard of it. I sure have. Oh, you it's have. a great yeah. book. I've read it's it twice. This, it's about this thick. Wow, that's... Okay, that... She had two fingers, about two inches apart. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty thick. Um Gosh. I've read half of it, and now I'm going to read the other half, and then Laura Feigl's book, which is about Doris Lessing and her writing and how it kind of, you know, has affected her life and the way she thinks about what it means to be a free woman mm-hmm. in this society we're talking about right now. So I'll be thinking about all these things a lot. I think about them all the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it would just be good to, um, yeah, maybe read another book sometime. Yeah. By a woman. Yeah. Right? That's a good idea. Yeah. I will do. Which one should I read then? 
I'm not going to read that fucking two inch Bible. No, I'm not going to make you read the Golden Notebook, although it would be really, really entertaining to have like a little Golden Notebook study group with you, Rob, specifically. Oh my God, such a bad title as well, The Golden Notebook. No, it's great. And you don't understand why it has to have a title. Anyway, women, Mm. men, people of all genders who are knowledgeable about feminism and gender issues. Or aren't. Or... Well, who know good books to read, mm-hmm. you're welcome to send us your suggestions via yeah. social media. Yeah. Or... Well, see how, see if this actually works. Every time I, I do a call to listeners to do stuff... They don't do it. No. Yeah, I know. And then I look like a knob. You don't look like a knob because no one is there hearing you call for listeners to right. do stuff and That's not true. knowing that they do it. Now you've ruined it because okay, as well, far as everyone else knew... Okay, well, Louis people are doing. Oh yeah, there'll be tons of stuff coming in. Yeah, that would um, be overrun. We should offer prizes for like the best woke feminist reading selection. Should we give? I, I know a good prize. What's a good prize? Jeremy Clarkson's autobiography. Oh my god! You know what? It's so funny because I was in today. I was in Chester. Uh-huh. It's so funny you mentioned that. Um, I was in Chester. I was in a place called Story House in Chester, which is like an arts venue there yeah. that I'd never been to before, which has a library that kind of shtick is. It has a library all around the building, and it also has a restaurant and a theater and all kinds of other spaces in there. It's one of those multi-format arts venues, but it's got a library. So I was like, as we're walking through, I wasn't really looking at the books, but um I just happened to catch the heading of the section that said literature. And I was like, oh, hmm, I wonder what literature they have here. And the first book I spotted, Jeremy Clarkson's autobiography. And I was like, that is not literature, no. okay? I'm sorry, but you need to take a look at your title headings, my friends. I, uh, I say, yeah, no doubt. I went to, I did an Airbnb in Penrith. Have you ever been to Penrith up in the lakes? No. Um. You know, you think about the Lake District, right? You think, oh, this lovely, beautiful... Penrith doesn't have a good reputation. It, Penrith know is it. not yeah. very nice. Yeah, no. Um, I, that's, not a, that's not fair. It's okay. But it's not, like, it's not Windermere. It's not bucolic. Yeah, exactly. And I went to, I got this Airbnb, and, you know, I came in, it's like all these wooden walls and stuff, and it was, it's really homely, and I thought, oh, this is lovely. Yeah. One book on the shelf, Jeremy Clarkson's uh... autobiography. And I thought... I have to stay here now. That would make me feel bad. I think I got a good Instagram post out of it. Okay, well, dissing my Airbnb hosts. Silver linings. Yeah. Um. Oh yeah, that's the reason I was going to mention Brexit. Why? Um, because Kevin talks about it. It's it's going to affect intellectual property rights on books, and that means less money for authors. Well, authors couldn't get much less money as it is. I know. There's, there was, There's did you see that big report about it uh, a couple months ago? Uh, There's a big campaign with Philip Pullman and a few other authors um, basically trying to raise awareness of the fact that authors are paid a pittance. Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, it really, truly is becoming something you can only do if you have another income. Yeah. Um, so, actually, we'll be talking about that at the Northern Lights Writers Conference on the 8th of September, mm-hmm. uh, which is at Sale Waterside. Yep. I am co-hosting it, and I will be, as part of that, hosting a panel discussion about this issue of, yeah. we'll with, talk about, with some authors. Put the keynote on the 
It's a big keynote speaker. Joanne Harris will yeah. be the keynote. And I believe this panel will be will include a famous author who I I don't think is confirmed yet or had confirmed Ooh. yet the last time I oh, talked yeah. to them. After. As well as folks from the Arts Council and uh, the Northern Writers... Uh, what's... Northern Fiction Alliance? No, no, no. Um, well, I'm really jet lagged now. I can't remember this. Mate, I couldn't remember fucking William Shatner, my <laughs> hero, my Canadian <laughs> hero. And I'm not even jet lagged. Yeah. Big Northern Writing Organization. Um, New Writing North! Yay! Christ. Thank you. Right, okay, there's two things I have to mention in this interview because we spoke months ago, I think it was in July or June, and um, this was recorded in the, in your favorite place, that entrepreneur weird farm. Oh god, that place was I know. so weird. I think he was the only person who hated it more than you. Oh really? He really was He really hated happy. it. Huh? I was like, how can you hate something where there's free beer and as much as you can drink? But anyway, I got rid of it by the way, I don't know if I ever told you that, it's gone, because no one ever wanted, no writers wanted to go there. It just weirded everyone out yeah. completely. But, and also, yeah. the recording is really shit, because you're going to hear in this podcast loads of high-heeled shoes tapping along, and you know, happy, middle-class entrepreneurs laughing jovially in the background, <laughs> and you know, rolling like Scrooge McDuck through massive piles of coins. Right on. And we also, in the podcast, talk about Ben Myers being shortlisted for the Walter Scott Prize. And since that interview, he's won it. So uh, that's it for now. This is Kevin Duffy talking about publishing. Listen. together um, a contract, uh, a transparent contract that we all use um, that states that if an author that we've found, you know, mentored, edited, published two or three books and developed their writing career over a certain length of time, you know, two, three, four, five years, then gets a massive book deal mm -hmm. off someone that there should be a clause in the contract that there is a kind of small percentage as a finder's fee. You know, like football. Yeah. Like Stockport County will have a clause if they sell a player on and then they play for England. But I, th I think I thought that sort of thing was implied. No. no so we just lost an author to HarperCollins and they just dangle a huge check in and then he just fucked off. But, oh, I see, but you still get... Like, if they want to take the book on themselves, you still get... Oh, if they, they buy, buy the book, book. Yeah. yeah. But if, they, if they're not in kind of out of... If they're out of kind of... If we've got a kind of two-book deal... Yeah. And then we do the second book, or they show us the, the second. There, what they say is their second book, but it really isn't their second book. And we turn yeah. it down, and they say contractually, you know, you've seen my second book, mm -hmm. but they're just taking the piss. And then they go with their real second book because they've had a much better offer from a publisher. Wow! And that's happened. That's happened twice now. Ah. Um, and because we can't give massive advances, this is one. One of the massive issues, and it's not the only issue, but it is an issue, is with agents. And what agents... Because all authors want an agent. Yeah. Because uh, um, they think they can get them the best deal and stuff. Yeah. And sometimes they can, but for small... Well, I think largely... For small independence, it's a massive problem, because like, we have become like the R&D yeah. of literary fiction. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just happened with Influx Press, because Kit Kalis, um, Ellie Williams has just gone off for a massive big deal. Gally Beggar, Eamon McBride went off for a massive deal. Mm -hmm. uh, we've lost uh, Michael Stewart to HarperCollins, and it's just happening more and more. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and because the corporates have got a different economic imperative, is they just want to produce blancmange, mm-hmm. and we do all the, you know, we do all the kind of uh, going out there and finding the writers. There has to be some radical change because we can't. Because I'm not, um, I'm not funded by the Arts Council. You're not. Rooms. We get grants now and again, but I have to apply for a grant. Oh, I see. But the people like Comma and other stories, People Tree, yeah, they get. 250 grand every two years. Right, I see. Uh, so we run on commercial success. I mean, it's, it's, it's the city, the city of pants stuff. <laughs> uh, and we do, we have had money um, from the Arts Council, and it's been fantastic, but for projects, because we've just got a project with short stories. We've never published short stories before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just, you know, that is, is essential. But, but the way literary fiction is, is funded, well, it's not funded as such um, it can't go on yeah. because you, one you don't make any money out of it we just break even mm-hmm. uh, and, and the corporates and just not because it's all about branding isn't it it's all about branding 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 yeah. uh, we'll talk about that later um, okay. Marcus Dole from PRH says you know every year every year he wants Penguin Random House to grow by 10% and also to be at least double digit profit sheesh which means you're not going to do anything, you're not going to take any risks, are you? You're just going to publish what you has been successful. Yeah. So then you just get fucking water all the moms then, don't you? And it's, it's, a, it's a double-edged sword, because we've, we've got authors who have the massive advance and their sales graph went the wrong way, and they've just been dropped. So that's what can kill a writing career. If you get an agent and a massive advance, but your sales don't mirror the advance, they're just going to drop you. Mm-hmm. But they can, they're going to do. Deal anything, you know. Well, when I, I yeah, but I, I've heard the same thing from uh, regular authors who are regular published who would say that even nobody is guaranteed the next book, no. whether they get a big advance or not. Mm-hmm. So well, why not two, take the big advance? No, then? but if you got a two book deal, you got a two book deal, haven't you? Yeah. Oh, so you mean they drop you in between books? Well, no, they would they would publish the second book, but they wouldn't market it. Right. That that hold that you'd be held to the held contract, yeah. but they'll just you know. Um, I mean, I used to be a sales rep, so you get, you know, your lead title is the one where the massive money's gone. Yeah. And then, you know, the 30th book that you're showing the, the bookseller, that's the one that's not going to go anywhere. Mm. And they will just drop it. In wow. Well, there's a huge thing. There's a massive amount of snobbery in publishing, period, mm-hmm. and class. And no one talks about class, hence the Northern Fiction Alliance. Yep. You know, Nathan is talking about class, you know, who do you think you are? Mm-hmm. That, that book, which is fantastic. And kicked a while, and, and lots of writers. Um, and but in, within publishing, if the people making all the decisions in the corporates are coming from that uniform upper middle class aristocratic background, where their life experience is limited and their reading experience is limited, mm-hmm. um, nothing will change. No, because they will then because they don't experience anything. I mean, Ben is the classic when he. Um, um, Richard was published by Picador, mm-hmm. and his second novel was Pig Iron. Yep. And he pre- presented Pig Iron to them, and they said, no, we're not going to publish that. And he said, why? And they said, who's going to be interested in a working-class character from a small northern town? Mm-hmm. That small northern town, yeah. Durham. <laughs> Theologi- <laughs> theological capital of Europe for about 2,000 years. But that, yeah. that kind of mindset is, is really difficult to shift. And... Yeah. The corporates and publishing still, they will have a talking shop, but nothing really gets done. Yeah. Nothing gets done. And so that's where 
that awful sentiment by some authors who say literary fiction is written by the middle classes for the middle classes. Mm-hmm. It has to be debunked. Yeah. Because from purely on, a, on, a, on, on an economic front, if you're, if you're cutting out two, you know, a third of the sales market, then it makes no sense sales-wise, does it? No. I think, it's, I think a lot of people in that industry, and this is how cynical I am, would go a step further and say that literary fiction is for the uh, Oxbridge class, like it's for mm. not even middle classes. Mm. You know, middle class people read yeah. Stephen King. Yeah. Or, uh, but then, why aren't st- I mean, even literary fiction is um, a marketing term, wasn't it? I mm-hmm. mean, they were just they were just kind of like good writing and average writing, wasn't that? You know, yes. bad writing. Yeah. So literary fiction in itself is a marketing tool. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you go into the academia. Uh, and, you know what what resonates with academia. It's you know the sentence between each full stop is the most important thing in certain senses of kind of you know postmodernism. And if you mention the word story, yeah, they will go and vomit in a bucket. Yeah, because you know that's not real writing. Because mm. they're trying to re- reinvent 1922, aren't they? Mm-hmm. You know, in literary fiction terms, you know, 1922, Ulysses, T. S. Eliot, Wasteland. You're not going to beat that, and they, they yeah. still are trying to reinvent it. Yeah. And you know, let authors do what they do best, which is use words and create fantastic characters and stories. Mm-hmm. I think, for me personally, if style dictates substance, then you do have an issue. Yeah, and I find that my problem with a lot of those sorts of books is that it just it you can tell it doesn't feel like there's any there's never the person that's written it has never been. Yeah. There's never been any pain in that person's life, yeah. and it's it's hard for me yeah. to take something like that yeah. seriously yeah. when you know somebody went to boarding school. Like, yeah. I don't care how good the writing is, yeah. I just think it's a he's a fraud, yeah. um, and that's why they like that's why boarding school boys yeah. write books about boarding school boarding yeah. school life, yeah. Yeah. or middle aged um, university professors that fall in love with their students, yeah, who can't yeah. get it up, and then yeah. it's trauma, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's tired, isn't it's it? Tired. It's tired, yeah. And surely books should reflect the society we're living. In. Yes, know, and that's what you want to But the thing is, the sales would say they do because the ones that sell a lot. Well, that's that's a bit of a <laughs> generalization. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> all of a sudden, uh, uh, E.L. James just popped into my head. So I yeah. actually maybe not so much. But um, I think it, the, most of the books that are like on Waterstones, yeah, uh, main shelf. None of those. I wouldn't say any of those are real. Like heavy. You know, mm-hmm. literature, literary fiction. There's like maybe one or two. Most of them would be like everything else. Yeah. I know those are the ones that sell. I mean, you have to make money so they can. But say pre the netbook agreement, pre 1995 when mm-hmm. the netbook agreement went, uh, the bigger publishers would have their kind of celebrity books and the big books, but they would then invest in new writers so you get a two or three book deal. A bit like the music industry, you know. And they would know that book one and two is not going to make them any money, but build that readership. Yeah. So by book three, four, five, they've got a massive following, and that's where they'll they'll make some money. But that has gone. Right. The first book has got to do it, and if it doesn't, you're out of the water. Which is doing nothing for a writer's career, is it? No, I'm uh, sending my book out at the moment, and the number of agents that say, "I want debut authors," yeah. Which at first seems quite positive. You're like, yeah. wow, that's yeah. quite nice. They want to take a chance on you. Yeah. But it's exactly, it's not. It's no, more it's cynical. It's new name. It's bang, bang, yeah. bang, isn't it? New, new, new. And, and then throw you obsession. away. Obsession. It's obsession with everything under 30. Mm. Why? Yeah. I, I don't understand. Is it because 
But the thing, you know, at one time it used to be that you could get um, column inches in magazines and newspapers. Mm-hmm. But magazines and newspapers are, are virtually defunct. You, know, yeah. you don't sell books from a review, really. No. You, you know, book sales, you, you'll, make more, you'll, make, you'll sell more from a kind of good Amazon review. Really? Than, yeah, Is that the if, truth? Yeah. You, if you get a review in, in, the, in the Guardian, yes, you will get people and it will sell. But, you know, reviews at one time, they had great heft and, and, and leverage with the kind of reader, but not anymore. Okay, so what sells a book now then? Radio. Really? The best thing, the biggest sales we've ever, ever had at Blue Moose is Radio 4. So, really? So, uh, what was Start it? of the Week, yep. uh, Book of the Week, um, yep. Book at Bedtime. Front we, Row? Front Row, yeah. Uh, we had a book, we had an author called Alistair Sutcliffe, and his book was called The Hardest Climb, and he had, um, he, he phoned me up and said, um, I'm the first man to reach the uh, the top of the highest mountain on each of the seven continents at the first attempt. Wow. And I said, not interested. <laughs> you know, where's the, where's the story? Yeah. Uh, and he said, but I had a, when, a month after I came down from Everest, I had a massive brain hemorrhage. Oh, now you're, now you're and interested. I said, and yeah. then I was interested. And so that's what people want to know about. It's yeah. kind of how you recovered. Uh, and we got him on midweek, and I was sat in front of the computer, and he had his uh, 12 minutes to tell his story. Mm-hmm. And the sales just went... Through the, the roof. roof, absolutely through the roof. Yeah, well, it just shows you people want a story. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. It's a funny disconnect that I can't yeah. get my head around because they, the people like the London big publishers, they want money. They know how to get money. Yeah. They know what sells. Well, maybe they don't, but and, but they still they don't want to have those authors on their, I don't know, masthead, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's also there's a lot of vanity as well, isn't it? They want the kind of the big author because it yeah. looks looks good for their kind of publishing house, but yeah. not necessarily will make them any money. But they want that, and that's the. Do you know what it is? I bet that's the Quentin Crisp thing. It's the peanut and champagne trail. It looks great because you've got a big, you know, someone who has won the Man Booker or has been, you know, at yeah. your party and stuff like that. And but yeah. but that would explain perfectly the, why it's. Um, People with you know trust funds, it, money doesn't matter. It's about cachet, mm-hmm. and that that yeah. actually that's yeah. a perfect reflection yeah. of why it's that way. Yeah. Why they don't care about these big sellers because they don't need the money. No. I know of an author who um, Oxford went down to London and started his own um, literary fiction night in Highgate on a Tuesday. Hired uh, a violinist in the corner behind the yucca and they read kind of <laughs> Eastern European poetry in dulcet tones to attract that crowd got a bit of a reputation and then within about you know six months he had his book deal uh, and his first novel and it was shortlisted because it, then he'd met all the people it's that got soft boys club. it's the soft power mm-hmm. it's the soft power it says oh meet so and so meet so and so and then the name appears in lots of different newspapers and reviews and then you go on shows and it's that um, but those in the know will say, no, it, never, it doesn't happen like that. Of course it happens like that. Mm-hmm. It's, that's, it's, it's the diplomatic network of, of the literary house. Yeah. I was in a, uh, I, okay, I've got to be careful here, uh, this kind of workshop thing where they were talking about how to get your novel published, you yeah. know, one of these, right? And one of the authors that was there was, it was her and an agent, and they were talking about how you get an agent. Mm-hmm. And um, she was talking about, oh, well, you need to you know, get your synopsis, da, 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 all this other, this, you know, the agency stuff. And then someone just asked her, well, how did you get your deal? He goes, oh, my husband 
is a, a writer. Yeah. I went to some cocktail party, met somebody, mm. and that's how yeah. I got my book yeah. published, which I think is well. The, the last and that's the person that's putting the workshop on. Yeah. Well, the last two, one of the two big literary fiction names. You look at kind of the the, the backstory, and they both went to Oxbridge. They both then worked <laughs> for a literary agency, then had a gap year, then signed up to another literary agency, and now big advance and their books are being shortlisted and that but it's it kind of a lot of it you know they might be brilliant books I haven't read them so I don't know but it, you look at it in, in kind of in that transparent way and you're just thinking it's following a similar pattern it's following a similar pattern they're bound to be just by the law of averages more great writers out there in the UK yeah. I had an agent selling me books to Blue Moves and I know that when an agent contacts me that they've contacted everyone else in the universe first. so I'm not that vain to think right. oh they've come to me first yeah. uh, and I so you don't think that it, there's not even a, a hint of he does these kind of experimental books maybe he there will. is if, if they think that they can't sell it or they, they can't sell it or at the minute now we get all kind of northern noir which is patronising in itself yeah. and this agent and I, I read that and, it did, and again it's very subjective isn't it it's all subjective of course it is and I'm not stupid and I just said, no, I don't, don't, didn't particularly like this, uh, this, this, this novel. And the agent then, uh, her parting shot was, but don't forget, Kevin, you're not a London publishing house. Hmm. And I said, well, that's why you're ringing me, isn't it? Yeah. And anyway, what's that got to do with the price of carrots? Yeah. You know, and it's, again, it's that metropolitan slapdown. We know best. Uh, and, and they use words like, oh, you've got a chip on your shoulder, mm-hmm. uh, you, you're very angry, you're brusque. And you're thinking, mm-hmm. of course I'm angry, because yeah. I've worked in publishing for 30 years, and I've mm-hmm. seen it from the inside. The most powerful people in publishing at one time used to be the editors. Now it's the sales and marketing people. Yeah, well, that's the same in everything. That's the same in education. Yeah, Venn diagrams and graphs on a Monday, mo- the Monday morning meeting, you know. Yeah. Absolute nonsense. Yeah. You know, why can't you fall in love with a book and then find readers? Yeah, and what a concept. You know, how novel is that? Yeah. Ooh. No pun That's <laughs> nice fun. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> That's bad, isn't it? Yeah. I've got it written down on my wrist. This guy's a joke, man. <laughs> um, right, okay, so that begs the question. We know what the problem is. How does it get fixed? It gets fixed, I think, by... It's that age-old problem, isn't it? Finding readers. Yeah. Finding readers. And I think one of the ways that we were doing it up here in the north, because we are, uh, you know, we, are diff- we, do, do, we do things differently in the north, mm. is the Tony Northern Wilson. Fiction Alliance. Yeah. And it's working together and it's using all our expertise together. Uh, and it's getting our stories out there and it, it's meeting different people. Uh, and, and as a collective, there are 10 publishers now. And we all cross-fertilise, promote each other, and it's finding readers. And I think now there are, there are lots of readers who are looking for books that have different content. So they're, they're actively looking for smaller independent presses. And we're getting out there now. Mm. Uh, and it's, it is difficult. The cynic would say that that's what they're telling you. Yeah, but we, I just see by the number of books I'm selling. Great. Over the past... Mm-hmm. I know oh, so you're talking readers, not writers. Oh, no, readers, yeah. Readers. Oh, great. Writers are Good. still coming to us as well. Yeah. I mean, I've just read a book today uh, by an Irish writer, a debut author, and it's probably the best debut I've read in 10, 15 years. Wow. It absolutely blew my head off. I cried twice for huh. the good reason. Gosh. And it had a literary weight, but it was effortless. Um, and those are the things that the writers are now looking to publishers, right. independent presses. Yep. Because the traditional route of getting an agent 
is impossible. It's just virtually impossible because mm-hmm. if you if you don't for, don't forget agents, their economic imperative is to bring. I know one agent who said to me, "I've got to bring in a quarter of a million a year just to keep my desk." Gosh. So they're not looking for the new quirky great writers. They're looking for perhaps new writers that are similar to someone else, mm-hmm. so that they can then pitch to a sales and marketing direction and say it has a feel of X, Y, or Z. Yep. And then that sales and marketing person then thinks, you know, then it's not too much of a risk. So then they can say to their, you know, the money men, you know, it's like that. We can do this. We can do that. Mm-hmm. A new person, she or he's under thirty, and then they'll do it, it that way. Yeah. Um, but I think we're seeing more and more writers now coming to us. Before they have an agent. Oh, wow. Well, I know Ben kind of did that, didn't he? Yeah, Ben ran, Ben moved to... He was living in London, um, and he's still a music journalist. He was living in London. Moved to the Upper Calder Valley in 2010. Mm-hmm. And it's when he had the Picador with Richard. He had the success with Richard, but they didn't want his next book. And he just um, contacted me and said, I've got this book. Will you have a look at it? I hadn't read Richard, and so I met him in a cafe. We had a brew. He handed me the manuscript, I read it within about three hours and then offered him a contract at the end of the night. Mm. Um, and that book that Picador turned down went on to win the inaugural Gordon Byrne Prize, mm-hmm. uh, Northern Fiction Award, and, and Ben has just won so many awards since. It's, it's crazy. And you just think, if they'd have gone with Pig Iron, they would now have... They would probably have sold a lot more than I have because they've yeah. got greater marketing heft mm-hmm. than I have. And a Walter Scott um, nomination. Yeah, yeah, I mean, sort of, yeah. But he's got, when he's been on a shortlist, he's got 100% hit rate. He's been on two shortlists and won he? both. Yeah. He won the Portico Prize, which is like the Northern Booker. Mm-hmm. So he won 10,000 for that, yeah. for Beastings. And then he won. Do, you, do you think these, these uh, Northern Awards mean anything to the London... They mean... They literati. Don't, uh, probably not. Mm. Probably, probably not, because we're still provincial. Yeah. Uh, um, but... When there's a prize that's worth £25,000, uh, even the big publishers don't sniff at that, which mm. is the Walter Scott Prize. Yeah. I mean, it's the world's leading literary historical prize for historical fiction, fiction yeah. which is just massive. It's just yeah. massive. You know? um, <laughs> and I think if you look at, I mean, there's a conversation to be had about the politics of prizes. You know, do our prizes, and what worth do they have? Mm-hmm. Uh, as a you know, as promoting literature, what work do they have, and and how fair are they? Exactly, but um, uh, to get that kind of awful word discoverability is fantastic. Um, but if you look at kind of the number of um, literary prizes that indie presses have been shortlisted for and have won over the past three or four years, be it the Man Booker, mm-hmm. be it Goldsmiths, uh, you know, some of the bigger prizes. Has an indie won the Booker? Yeah, one world won it twice on the road, didn't oh, they? Oh, right, um, And, you know, Angel Bride won the kind of Goldsmiths, the Baileys, the Irish yeah. Book Award. Um, and the Republic of Fiction Prize was won by uh, Ellie Williams, yeah. uh, Influx Press. Is that the um, Atrib? Atrib, yeah. Um, so if you look at kind of, in the context of, of prizes, longlist and shortlist, it's all the smaller publishers that are doing kind of the groundwork. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, at the, we're at the cutting edge. That's it, yeah. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, the Brexiteers might just say, well, you know, you're in, you're in publishing. If it doesn't sell, then it's not, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Uh, it's go. art, mate. You know, yeah. That's another problem about kind of Brexit, intellectual property rights. Of, um, and because the Americans, but at the minute, the single market is a different market. 
once Brexit happens, then the American publishers can say, uh, we want English language rights for a, to the author for a book. And that so, includes Britain. And uh, Yeah, and that includes Britain. So then Britain would have to export to Europe. So then it would be an export. Oh so my God. authors would get uh, less royalties and then have to compete with the American, big American publishers because they would want English language rights worldwide rather than uh, US and... Uh, Do you know, the more I hear about this Brexit thing, the more I think it's a bad idea. It is. It is. It is. <laughs> even uh, Mr. Davis doesn't really know what's going on at the minute. I'm not it? convinced he even wants it. No. But we've, I've done so much whinging on this podcast yeah, about Brexit that okay. I can't, I can't even face it anymore. Right, so I guess the, the, one of the questions now is... <clears throat> One of the, the amazing things about Blue Moose, I think, is that you actually take unsol- unsolicited, yeah, unsolicited manuscripts. Yeah. What are you looking for? Initially, it's got to be the beauty of the writing. See, I knew you were going to say writing. something like that. It's the writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Writing, writing, writing. And from that, the characters, and what they happen, how the characters um, evolve within the story. But it's got to be the writing. You can tell sure. within two or three pages whether someone's got... Uh, a gift for using words and you know it's as simple as that so and it's the quality kind of, of the writing do you mean it kind of in a poetic sense uh, kind of lyrical kind of it's lyrical I mean if you look at Ben's writing there's a lyrical prose there and the way he uses words you're immediately you're immersed in his story which in Ben's uh, in Ben's sense is landscape and nature you're completely immersed in the world that he's created and the book that I just read today, I was completely immersed in the world that that writer had created. Mm. Uh, and that is a fantastic skill. It's a, you know, and, and very few people have it. Mm. Very few people have it. But it's the writing. It's always the writing. Does this writer, this, uh, is it an Irish it's writer? It's an Irish writer, yeah. Does this Irish writer know how... I just emailed him an hour ago and yeah. said I would love oh, to give you a contract. There's an email in the ether yeah, the making e- dreams come true. He emailed back when I was on the train yeah. and just said I'd love Blue Moose to publish it. Oh, brilliant. I really love you, so we're going to publish it. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It's called um, Leonard and Hungry Paul. It's a good it's title. by Ronan Hessian. World exclusive. Wow, yes. Uh, and it knocked me off my feet. And it's... Um, Without going all Miss World on it, it's the reason why you do it. But when you find a story and a writer that can knock you sideways, just with the simplicity of the beauty of their language and their writing ability, that's fun. It's lovely, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Especially when you've had a shitty day and yeah. you just kind of just drop into a book, can't you? Yeah. And how, that's what it's all about. How many crappy ones do you have to go through to get that one? Um... Maybe crappy well, is not the right word. When you say, um, you, you said about unsolicited manuscripts, we don't get unsolicited manuscripts through the door. Mm. And we always say it's the first three chapters in the synopsis. Yeah. And uh, you, within the first two or three pages, you know yeah. that the, 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 uh, the person um, is, is, is struggling with writing. Um, and we probably won't be publishing that book. So I, I would probably read 50 through lots of chapters a week. Uh, and I would ask for probably two to send the uh, finished manuscript to me. Mm. So I'll probably read about 100 manus- full mm. manuscripts a year, and out of that we'll publish between four and six. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's, a, we're a, kind of, there's four of us and we, we pass it around. Yeah. Uh, and then if we all... Uh, and uh, the, the most important people in Blue Moon are the editors. We've got three fantastic editors. And we've all got different... Um, and I think this is another reason why independent publishers are, are doing so well i.e. winning prizes and things, is that 
the editing uh, and the editors are the most important people within publishing because they I love a book but they can see they are the first reader and they can see structurally where there are a few errors and then they, they work with the, the, the writer I mean um, one of our editors will be working with Ronan for uh, 12 months mm-hmm. on a kind of... Will be, you will said, be, yeah. yeah. Will be working with, you know, uh, and so within six months that book will then be in its published right and then two other editors will get in there and, and kind of polish it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's got to be the writing. It's mm-hmm. got to be the writing. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so the your Arts Council funded? No. Is, you're not Arts Council funded? We get... Oh, sorry, you get money, money from the Arts Council. But grants. That's a pro- now right. and again, we go for grants. Yeah. So we've had a grant for... Uh, we got a grant last year uh, to um, publish... Post-Brexit, I wanted to publish um, 10 short stories yes. about the northwest coastline of England called Seaside Special Postcards from the Edge yep. with five well-known authors and then um, putting five... We put out a, a, a submission call for five unpublished authors uh, Jen Ashworth, who's edited uh, the collection. She's a so, good friend of this podcast. Yeah, she um, she collated and curated uh, the short story collection. So she chose five uh, writers uh, to go with the big names. Uh, and we've just received it from the printers last week. Right. So, so does the number of books you publish, is that dictated by the grant money? Not really, no. Because we published um, other books that weren't part of that grant. Um, but if probably in a years time I might want to do I want to do lots of kind of working class writers uh, um, so we might go for a grant in that way but I don't know yet mm. but we will we might if we didn't you know, get lots of money from somewhere uh, we might not publish 10 books here but I wouldn't want to publish more than 10 because mm. I don't want to ape a big organisation because yeah. I think you lose that kind of personal feel don't you yeah well it, it comes down to well I do you if you if you just hire more editors because it's, it's about the Perhaps editor it's a control thing for me maybe then. it could be because yeah. I like to be involved in every single you know, one I mean, we're a kind of we're a, a public we're, we're readers and writers uh, and, I, and I like to be involved in every step of the way yeah uh, and I say to the kind of debut authors it's like being in a, a band you know punk you do all the kind of pubs and clubs and that's how you build your readership and we all you know I always go with writers to every event if I can yeah just to kind of just to be there or uh, and support them, yeah, because it's important. Yeah. Uh, why Why Hebden Bridge? We moved to. I was living. Besides in the, the fact that it's, it's beautiful, the right mecca for writers. Yeah, as well. I mean, if you dropped a bomb on Hebden, then there would be no <laughs> there would be no continuing dramas in the UK because <laughs> all the writers for Corrie, Emmerdale, and yeah. EastEnders work in Hebden, and there's yeah. a certain cafe that you could just. Annihilate um, <laughs> if you're of if you're of a mind to do that. Yeah. Um, my uh, maternal grandmother lived in Todmorden, which is the next village down. And in the late '60s, we used to kind of come and visit Hebden Bridge. Yeah. Um, and we were living in London. I uh, got married. I was working for Headline, and uh, our first child was on the way, so we moved to Leeds because it was cheaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we moved from Leeds There's to good Morley, reason for that. and then we moved to Hebden Bridge because mm-hmm. um, schools and it's just it's just a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, it's just a beautiful part of the world. I I I can't. I've been there a couple of times. Anytime I go, I just think it feels like Didsbury on steroids or something. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think A.S. Bryant called it the Greenwich Village of the North. Yeah. Which is, <laughs> it's pushing it a bit. Yeah. But it's just, you know, you've got the hills, you've got, you know, the confluence of two rivers coming together. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a great atmosphere. There's lots of artists. There are more therapists per square foot in Hebden Bridge than anywhere else in Europe, <laughs> apart from the west coast of America. That doesn't surprise so, me, even yeah, in the slightest. That know, makes perfect sense. If you want chronic irrigation for your cat, <laughs> you can go there. Yeah. Go there yeah. Maybe it's more more, instead of the Didsbury on steroids, the Charlton on steroids. Yeah, well, Charl- well I went to school in Molly Range, uh, so yeah. all my mates were from Charlton. Yeah. Well, quite a few of my mates were from Charlton, so, yeah. yeah. Although I went to, we had a launch at Burley Fisher Books in London. And I got off the tube uh, at Dalston and was walking down, and it's called uh, Haggerston now, apparently. <laughs> uh, and I walked past the, the sourdough bakery, naturally. And it is peak hipster down there, isn't yes. it? It looks like the American Civil War. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I walked past the two shops before Burley Fisher. There was a shop and all it sold was cactus or cacti. And I'm thinking, There's a, we've got a problem. Mm-hmm. We've got a problem, haven't we? But no, Hebden Bridge was just a nice place. The property was cheap. We bought a house. Uh, and it's just a, yeah, it's a, it's a nice place. Yeah. I usually um, finish the podcast interview by asking, what are you doing now? But you already answered that. So I'm going to ask you a stupid question right. instead. okay. Got all this grant money. Yeah. Is it, could you put a bit aside to improve your logo? Well, <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> I, as a Canadian. Oh, no, it's the, all right, it's the worst the moose is I've ever seen. Oh, no, I just like the eyes. Yeah. Just the eyes get Piercing. Me. The piercing, yeah. yeah. No, I just, I love it. Damn you. I'm not, I'm not coming back here again. Yeah, no, it's good. No, uh, there's no. a reason I left that question no, for last. Oh, no, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I would have walked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Thank you very much, Kevin. Right, cheers. Thank you. So that was the interview with Kevin Duffy. Listen, I still think we should get that accordion out. Yeah, come I can't on. Play it. He, oh, he's guys, he's getting it. I can't play it. I can only make the sound. What is it? It has some writing in Cyrillic on the side. What does yeah, that say? Right. It is Cyrillic. Yeah. Oh. oh, here we go. Live accordion. Well, p- press the keys. You know, okay. Make an effort, man. There we go. Hey. Makes a nice sound. I just wish I knew how to play it. Maybe, that, maybe we should go out on this. Yeah, there you go. All right, this is Rob's accordion playing. This is Rob playing a sound with his accordion, solo, solemn accordion playing. Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> what a couple of dorks.